At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the prophecy of Isaiah, the second chapter, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah chapter 2 and verses 1 through 5. Let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's Holy Word, beginning in verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing tonight, let's turn our attention back to that passage that we just read from Isaiah chapter 2, where we find a prophecy from Isaiah speaking the word of the Lord concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And we understand as a principle of interpreting the book of Isaiah and the prophets in general that oftentimes when the prophet speaks of Judah and Jerusalem, he's speaking of Judah and Jerusalem in their capacity as the central focal point of God's church on earth. And so God's kingdom on earth. His covenant people was located in the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom had gone into captivity. This is around 700 years before the birth of Christ. And so there's a reference here to Judah and to Jerusalem, which we know is throughout the Old Testament a picture of what the New Testament speaks of. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says whenever we come into new covenant worship, uh, we're coming to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, an innumerable company of angels, so on and so forth. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, is there, is here in this worship service. And so we need to understand this is a prophecy in particular concerning the church. It's speaking in Old Testament church language to speak of the New Testament church. In fact, when we speak of the New Testament church, That language comes from a prophecy of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, where he speaks of the new covenant or testament, the new covenant. And we say, well, we're new covenant Christians, so these references to Judah and Jerusalem in the Old Testament can't refer to us. But if you look at Jeremiah 31, it says that the new covenant is made with Israel and Judah, right? So you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, I'm a new covenant Christian, and... uh, apply that to the Gentile believing church in our day and then say 
that Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem are terms that never refer to the New Testament church. The New Testament phraseology comes from an Old Testament prophecy about Israel and Judah. So that's not going to work. So here we have uh, every reason to believe from these verses that this is a prophecy concerning the New Testament church. Hence verse 2, now it shall come to pass in the latter days. So Christ has returned and brought in the last phase of redemptive history prior to his return. Throughout the New Testament, consistently, uh, this period between Christ's first coming and his second coming is referred to as the last days, the, the last times, the, the latter days. For instance, Hebrews 1, 1 says, or verse 2 of Hebrews 1 says that God has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So 2,000 years ago, Christ established his New Testament church. And in that first century, we're told it's the last days. So we're in the last days. We're in the last major period of history before the final judgment when Christ returns. And so it shall come to pass in this latter day period, this New Testament period, that the mountain of Jehovah's house, the Lord's house, uh, which is a picture of, again, Mount Zion, the temple, the worship of God. We apply this to what is the temple of God in the latter day period, the New Testament period. Uh, the church is the temple of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, so on and so forth. The church is the new covenant temple established on Mount Zion, as it were. And we're told that this Mount Zion uh, of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. In the Old Testament, mountains and hills are representative of kingdoms and nations. You even see in the book of Revelation, you have a reference to the seven heads on the beast are seven kings, seven kingdoms, seven hills or mountains. This is consistent imagery throughout the scriptures. Uh, so we're told here that the church shall be established above all these other kingdoms of the earth, exalted above them all, and all nations shall flow to it. So Jesus established his church. He sent out the Great Commission, preached the gospel to every creature as a witness to all nations, disciple all nations, uh, baptizing them, teaching them, and here we find all nations then flowing into the New Testament church during the New Testament period. Many people, verse 3, shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. Again, God's word is proclaimed in his church. People are gathering to hear the preaching of the word in the church of God during the New Testament period. And the language here, whenever you see, especially in the Old Testament, the word people, sometimes King James, I think especially the New King James translations, along with many other of the modern translations, will translate the word people as if it's the plural of person. So you have one person, you have two people. That's the way we speak in modern parlance. But the word for people in Hebrew means people group. 
And very frequently, whether it's translated in the singular or the plural, it's in the plural, frequently, in the Hebrew. Um, so we're dealing with people groups here. That's the, that, that's the way we're to understand this. Many peoples shall come and say. So the plurality, the word many, the, the peoples, many peoples shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of Jehovah. So it's not just individuals, you know, oh, there's one person going to church and then there's two people or there's many people, 15 people. No, these are people groups. This is on a grand global corporate scale, peoples, nations to the house of the God of Jacob. And they'll be instructed uh, and, and taught the ways of God. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Jehovah from Jerusalem. Now we could refer that to the Great Commission, which is to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And some people might object, well, earlier in the text, verse one, you interpreted Judah and Jerusalem in terms of the New Testament church in a more figurative way. So you look at verse three, even though the Great Commission actually did start in Jerusalem and it would fit literally from Zion, the law and the word of God goes forth, you could understand it spiritually as well. You could say, well, it's from the church of God, the spiritual Jerusalem in every nation that the gospel is proclaimed and that is the house of God to which the nations will flock. So it's not limited to the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, but it's difficult to read this without thinking of the origin of the Great Commission, which began in Zion, in Jerusalem. So it's a little difficult to not incorporate that into our interpretation. But in any event, you have the church of God proclaiming the word of God, the law of God. Jesus says, teach them to observe whatsoever I have commanded. Matthew 28, that's the Great Commission. That's exactly what we have described here. And notice the conversion, the salvation, the fruit of repentance that takes place in this passage is not dealing with individuals. And as we, again, I'm, I'm choosing this, this evening to begin by explaining the text before we pivot back into our sermon series, but it's important to realize many of these passages that speak of an optimistic outlook, uh, not just optimism, but faith in the promise of God, that there will come a day before Christ returns when all nations will be discipled. All nations will join together in a collective corporate profession of the true religion. Whenever we encounter these verses, a number of them, a number of these verses, speak in such corporate, national, geopolitical, corporate, public ways that we just can't understand a verse like this or a passage like this merely as a tiny representative remnant of individuals. See, this is the temptation sometimes where we say, well, all nations will come to faith. Well, it's, it's you know, 0.2% of every nation. There will be representation of uh, individual Gentile converts comprising a tiny representative remnant from every nation. But a passage like this, as many of them we've looked at before, would be similar. You just can't understand it that way because the fruit of this massive ingathering of the nations is corporate and national and public and geopolitical and global. Verse 4, he shall judge between 
the nations and rebuke many people. You see the Hebrew parallelism there. That's what I'm saying earlier. People is people groups. So in the Hebrew parallelism, he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people or peoples. So we're dealing with entire nations and people groups, ethnicities, we could say, tribes, tongues, peoples, nations. And it's saying that he'll judge between them. So they have grievances against each other. They're at war with each other. And he's judging between them, sorting things out. Uh, We know that's something that needs to happen in our day. We see wars and rumors of wars throughout this age. We see it in our own Uh, in in the world, in the Middle East, in recent days and weeks, uh, nations rising up against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. And so this is saying that as the nations are converted to the faith in Christ, the Prince of Peace, that His Word, as it's proclaimed out of Zion, His law as it goes forth will as it were provide a standard by which he will judge the nations. It's not saying he's going to return in this particular passage. Uh, We saw he's going to return at the end of history in our psalm meditation, but here it's his word that provides a standard of judgment and discernment uh, to to figure out these and, and, and solve these disagreements among the nations. As they come to trust in Christ and obey his word, they are gradually brought to peace. He'll judge them, he'll rebuke them, and he'll rebuke many of them because we know in our day, uh, many nations need to be rebuked, including our own, uh, for many reasons. But that rebuke, that judgment will come through his word, through his law, through his church. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. So their military weaponry, their military budget or spending or allocation for resources militarily will no longer be necessary, right? It's important to have a good, strong military for defense, but as nations are coming to faith and being brought under the influence of the Prince of Peace, that becomes less and less necessary. And so what are we going to do with all these resources that we've been allocating to military endeavors. We're going to beat our swords into plowshares. We're going to redirect it toward agricultural things for the prosperity and provision of of the land, of the nation. Uh, And and of course, in some sense, it means reducing taxes so that the people that are at the plows are not having to give their money more and more to the government so they can't plow their fields and, and be prosperous in their agriculture. So it's not necessarily saying the government is going to take military spending and spend it on agriculture, but they won't need all that spending. They can cut taxes, people can plow their field and be prosperous. And their spears into pruning hooks, which is essentially just a parallel statement. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. They won't even have to focus on military education and training. These things will be less and less prominent, less and less necessary. And Think about it, if there's even one wicked nation in the world, you would need to learn war. If there's one nation that you're suspicious about, if there's one nation that's ungodly and wicked and hasn't been rebuked by the word of God and discipled by the gospel, then 
uh, then there's need to prepare the defenses. This is saying it's just not going to be an issue. Now, does that sound uh, outlandish? Does that sound impossible? Well, uh, it's a Christian church. Jesus rose from the dead. God is the God of the impossible. That's what the text says is going to happen. And this flows in really to our sermon series, that when you look at the Bible, you can see that as we saw in Romans 4.13, Abraham was promised that he and his seed, Christ and his church, would become heir of the world. All nations will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to Christ's return. This is not the sort of view of the quote-unquote end times that's very popular, but as we've seen, as we've gone through the book of Genesis, as we've gone through the book of Psalms, as we'll look at the prophecy of Isaiah this evening, it's crystal clear that there are few doctrines that have as much biblical evidence than this one in the scriptures. And so we need to take this seriously because in our own day, uh, it doesn't look like the church is on the rise and that all nations will eventually be converted. But again, we're not saying it's going to happen tomorrow or next week. We're not saying that we have to have a necessarily a positive, optimistic outlook about the current leadership in this country or that country or the current landscape in our land at this moment or in our culture because it may just be that it's not the time for this, but this is coming. This, we're told, will happen during the latter day period, that is, during the New Testament period of which we are a part even today. So all nations will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to Christ's return. This is made very clear in Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. Now, let's build on this. Isaiah chapter 9, a very familiar passage that we often think of when we think of the birth of our Savior. We think of this passage. This is Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now that's obviously referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is both man, he's a child, a human child, born of the virgin, which we see in Isaiah chapter 7. Unto us a child is born, he's the man Christ Jesus, but also unto us a son is given. This child is not merely human, he is the eternal son of God. The word who was in the beginning with God and who is God. And so we have this God-man mediator, this savior given for us. He's a human child, he's the divine son of God, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Uh, he'll be the king. He'll be the king of his church. He will be given his head over all things to the church with all power in heaven and earth. He's the king. And his name will be called Wonderful. He's a wonder worker. He has almighty power. Uh, he, he, he alone does wondrous works, as we sing of uh, the Lord in uh, the doxology to one of the Psalms. Uh, counselor. He's a teacher, he's an instructor, mighty God, literally divine warrior. Uh, he is God, and he is a mighty man on the warpath, everlasting father, uh, the father of eternal life. Uh, he, he, 
as it were, begets his covenant seed, even as we come out of Adam and into Christ. He's the everlasting father, prince of peace. He rules and promotes peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, and what does his government include? Matthew 28, I've been given all power, all authority in heaven and on earth. So it's not merely government of the church, but he's head over all things for the church. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So you say, well, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, that's just not going to happen. That's impossible. Uh, Swords into plowshares, it might look good as a slogan, but it's never going to happen. Yeah, well, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Is it wonderful? Is it too difficult, as that word actually means? No, it's not. It's not too wonderful for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This is the peace of of, uh, Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. The peace, and it will have no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward even forever, the zeal of Jehovah of hosts will perform this. So the throne of his father David. Well, yes, that includes Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah, but we also understand, as we looked at the Psalms last time, that Psalm 72, which includes the the fulfillment of the prayers of David, it says at the very end, says that he shall reign and have dominion over to the ends of the earth, from the sea, from the river, to the ends of the earth. So the kingdom of David is ultimately a universal kingdom. Psalm 2, ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth. So the the throne of David is at God's right hand. Psalm 110, David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll put your enemies under your feet. So this is a universal dominion. He orders and establishes it with judgment and justice. And we're told that this is going to happen. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Why is that put in there? Because it seems so impossible. That's why it's put in there. Just like Jesus frequently says, verily, verily, assuredly, I say unto you. Why does he do that? Because we're tempted to doubt. We're tempted to reinterpret these things. We're tempted to minimize them to fit the pattern of what we've seen in history so far. But you see, God is always bursting the boundaries that we put on him. And Uh, We cannot reduce biblical prophecy simply to things that we've already seen in our own day. God is always uh, going above and beyond what we can ask or imagine. So you see the peace of Isaiah 2 really brought about by the Prince of Peace and through this gradual advance. Now it's interesting in Isaiah 9, just before the verses we read, in verse... Four, it says, for you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. So it's prefacing this statement of this victorious establishment of peace and justice in the world. It's prefacing it by saying that this victory will come as in the day of Midian, which if you know your biblical history, the book of Judges, the story of Gideon, and when God raised up 300 men 
and they overthrew, what was it, 130-some thousand of the Midianites and Amalekites. God does not need an impressive majority to start this advance. He, do, he, he doesn't need to, be, uh, you know, it, it's not as though the gradual nature of this advance of his kingdom is going to be such that it's just going to be intuitive and obvious, and he's just going to increase it, increase it, increase it in such an obvious way that we don't need faith anymore to believe in these things. No, he does it in the most counterintuitive ways possible. He whittles down Gideon's army to 300 so that he gets the glory, you see. That's how this universal conquest is going to happen time and time again. We've seen it up to this point in history. It's often those committed, uh, spirit-anointed minorities that rise up. They don't have the numbers. They don't have the outward strength, not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. And that's how this advance, that's how this victory moves forward. So we don't want to sit back and say, well, I'm just going to ignore these prophecies until I see some big great awakening or revival. But you see, even great awakenings and revivals often start with a few scattered people, and then it grows and grows. So we should be on the edge of our seat. We should be ready and, and seeking these things, praying for these things, laboring for these things, even as impossible as it may seem. I mean, imagine going to war, going to battle with 300 soldiers against 130-some thousand. Imagine that. Um, you see, the text actually anticipates these objections, and it embeds these references in here to say, yes, you're going to be reading this in church. It's going to be preached on in the New Testament times. You're going to say, well, that's impossible. And then God's going to say, wait, go back to the days of Midian, 300 versus 130-some thousand. Okay back on the same page. This is going to happen. The zeal of Jehovah of hosts will, or we could say shall, perform this as improbable as it may seem to the fleshly eyes of men. Also, Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11 is a beautiful prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah is frequently called the evangelical prophet because so much of his prophecy points to Christ and salvation and the gospel and the, the New Testament times. So Isaiah 11, you can see in verses 1 through 5 that there's a prophecy of this Messiah, the son of David, who will come. Uh, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. So Jesse's not doing too well. There's a stump or a stem Things aren't great in, in the kingdom of David by the time that Jesus arrives. You, know, you look at his earthly adopted father, Joseph, who's the heir to the throne, and he's a carpenter living in obscurity. But uh, out of that, and, and you look at Mary from the line of David, same thing, totally obscure. And out of that virgin, out of that stump of Jesse, is coming forth a rod, as it were, a scepter from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Again, it's almost like the tree's cut down, it's a stump, it's roots, and then this scepter grows right out of the roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the, the book of Revelation talks about the sevenfold Spirit of God, the seven spirits of God. Here we see that sevenfold perfection, completeness, as the number seven indicates, of the anointing of Jesus. The name Christ means anointed one. 
here. The, the spirit of Christ, the anointing spirit, is upon him in sevenfold measure. He's the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, the seven spirits of God. In other words, the sevenfold anointing, the perfect anointing of the spirit without measure. And so this anointed Christ, his delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. Uh, Jesus knew the thoughts and intents of the hearts of the people that he interacted with, and he still has eyes as a flame of fire to see and know the thoughts of men. Uh, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, right? The meek will inherit the earth, how counterintuitive that is. But if the meek have this anointed one on their side, then yes, they will see the gospel conquer to the ends of the earth. They will inherit the earth because Jesus, through his word and spirit, will judge on their behalf. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's the word of God. This is not a reference necessarily to the scepter that dashes wicked nations to pieces like a potter's vessel, which we saw in Psalm 2 last time. But this is the rod of his mouth, the, the preaching of his word, and with the breath of his lips. The word breath is spirit, the spirit of his mouth. So you've got the, the word, the, the sword coming out of his mouth, excuse me, the rod out of his mouth, same idea. The rod out of his mouth and the spirit of his lips. And through these things, he will slay the wicked. Paul quotes this in 2 Thessalonians 2 with respect to the man of sin. That one of the ways that the man of sin, whoever he might be, we don't have time for that, but the man of sin, the Antichrist who rises up against Christ and seeks to sit in the temple of God as though he is God and, and proclaim himself to have all the authority of Christ himself, um, that man of sin, as our confession says, the Pope, we could get into that, but the point is that he'll be defeated not just at the appearance of Christ's coming, but he'll be defeated by the word of God. Uh, the rod of his mouth, the spirit of his lips, will destroy that imposter. And in fact, uh, we see that at the Reformation to a great extent, right? What is it that defeated the tyrannical persecution and false teaching of the papacy? What, what is it that brought that worldwide empire down so many notches to where it is today? It's, it's the gospel, friends. It's the word of God. It's not uh, the swords of earthly princes, but the rod of Christ's mouth, the preaching of the gospel, has in many respects caused the, the imposter, spiritual imposters. That's how it always works. It's through the word of God. They're brought down. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Uh, this is similar to the description of the whole armor of God for the believer in Ephesians 6. Uh, as one preacher has said, uh, when we put on that armor, the armor's still warm from, from when Christ has been wearing it. And uh, there's something beautiful about that. He's a man of war, and we ride forth with him. Verse 6, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. 
The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And you say, well, isn't that heaven? Uh, not according to the Geneva Bible, not according to the Puritans, not according to John Calvin, not according to the Westminster annotations on the scriptures, an entire commentary put together by Westminster divines, not according to Matthew Henry, Matthew Poole, John Trapp, John Gill, just to name a few. Now, we're not, you know, like the Pharisees here, the tradition of the elders, but the point is, um, that is not the historic understanding of this passage. And there's been a lot of confusion in recent generations where people have completely forgotten what the historic interpretation is and why that interpretation is the standard historic view among confessional Reformed Presbyterians. Now, um, what is this referring to? Uh, let's think about this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. So you have these animals that are naturally violent and aggressive, living at peace with those who are vulnerable. And you say, well, maybe that's talking about paradise, maybe that's talking about heaven. Um, but verse 6 at the end there, it refers to a little child shall lead them. They're not going to be children in heaven. We're not going to be marrying and giving in marriage and having childbirth. We've dealt with this in previous sermons. Uh, in heaven, there won't be little children. So if you're interpreting this literally of literal animals, you know, this sort of millennial zoo or you know, people in, in heaven, you know, these animals in heaven, um, there won't be little children in heaven. So you can't take it literal in that sense. Um, you, you see as well in verse 8, the nursing child, ladies, you're not going to be nursing babies in heaven. So the literal interpretation here is not looking good so far. The weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. So again, we won't have these distinctions of age, marriage, giving in marriage, having children, nursing children, weaning children. None of these things are literally going to be in heaven. So why is it a literal wolf and a literal lamb? That's inconsistent. Uh, the historic interpretation here is that this is a figurative representation of the, transform, the transformation that takes place when someone is born again. That when people are born again, Saul of Tarsus, breathing out threatenings against the saints, is converted into the Apostle Paul who proclaims the gospel of peace. In the church, when people are converted and brought in, you see a strange assortment of people in the church. That out in the world, these kinds of people would be at each other's throats, the violent, the vulnerable, but they're brought into the church and they're at peace and they live in harmony. There are churches in the Middle East where there are uh, ethnic Jews and ethnic Arabs worshiping Jesus Christ together. That is not something that you see very often in the world. But in the kingdom of Christ, you see those who were at odds in the world, their natural sinful inclination is to fight and be violent and vicious. And when God converts us, he takes away that spirit of the wolf, of the leopard, of the serpent, 
and he gives us a spirit of peace. And we live in harmony with people that, you know, if you look at a church that's filled with love and unity, it really is a miracle, even more so to some extent, because you can train actually some of these animals to do some of these kinds of things. You can train them. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily want to be the guinea pig to test it out, but you can train some of these animals to not uh, attack certain other animals or even humans that might be vulnerable. Uh, but try doing that with humans that are bent on bitterness and violence. This is a miracle. Uh, and the Geneva Bible puts it this way. Men, because of their wicked affections, are named by the names of beasts, in which the same affections reign. But Christ, by his Spirit, will reform them and work in them such mutual charity that they will be like lambs, favoring and loving one another, and cast off all their cruel affections. And then it uh, refers to Isaiah 65, verse 25, a, a parallel passage of the lion and the lamb and so on. Uh, Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan, in a sermon series called The Touchstone of Regeneration, which is on uh, Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, he had a whole, this might actually be just one sermon, but at one point he had a whole sermon series on this passage, and listen to how he opens that sermon. I have formally, in diverse sermons upon this scripture, declared that it, by way of prophecy, foretelleth what shall be the fruits of Christ's kingdom under the gospel, showing that miraculous change Christ should make upon men, shadowed out in this scripture under the similitude of beasts, as lions, wolves, bears, leopards, etc. The sum whereof is that God will take us from that fierceness, malignity, and bitterness of nature in us, and bring us in place thereof to a loving, sweet, mild, and meek society together. John Calvin on this passage, quote, he again returns to describe the character and habits of those who have submitted to Christ. He goes on, hence it follows that he forms their minds by his heavenly spirit, end quote. Now, Calvin does go on to speculate that this may have some kind of imagery for the new heavens and the new earth, but uh, he's pretty much by himself for the most part among the major reformed uh, trends in the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, listen to this, Westminster Annotations uh, on Isaiah 11, 6 and following. This is uh, the Westminster Divines put together this Bible commentary. Quote, here is laid down the strange effect that this powerful government of Christ should have upon the souls of those who by the ministry of the word shall be subdued unto him and become loyal subjects of his spiritual kingdom. They shall through the efficacy thereof be so inwardly changed that they shall seem new creatures, transformed out of beasts into men. This is set forth by an allegorical illustration wherein it is said that such beasts and other creations as are naturally ravenous and harmful as bears and wolves, adders and vipers and the like, should now quietly and harmlessly keep and converse with mankind and with cattle, whom they were wont to prey upon, and so much mischief to before, thereby implying that such persons as had formerly been of a fierce, savage, unreachable, and intractable disposition, like to such forementioned creatures, should then become mild and gentle, tame and harmless, tractable and teachable, 
laying down that their former brutish, fierce, forward and untoward disposition and that therefore there should be an abundance of peace, consequently and safety without fear of spoil and rapine, but one from another, by one from another in the kingdom of Christ. He goes, they go on, some of the Jewish writers suppose an allusion herein to the state of the creatures in Noah's ark, wherein being shut up, they kept all quietly together during the whole time of the deluge or the flood. And it may be admitted that the prophet so doth, but that which they add, that it shall be so again in the days of the Messiah, that all creatures shall then do the like again, is a mere fable and a fiction of their own idle minds, end quote. That's the Westminster divines, what they think of the idea, either the dispensational idea that this is talking about the millennium, the, the lion and the lamb, or as the famous painting, which is a beautiful painting, but... Um, or new heavens, the new earth. This is how it has been regarded. And again, you can look Matthew Henry, Matthew Poole, John Trapp, John Gill, very similar interpretations. What it's telling us here is that this advance of the kingdom throughout the whole world and, and to all nations will involve peace. Peace in the church, as we'll see, actually as we see right here. As people are converted, as nations that are wolves and vicious and violent, preemptive military nations, imperialistic nations, they're brought under the power of the gospel. They're no longer up to their old shenanigans, trying to police the world and invade various countries and, and uh, steal natural resources from, from other people groups throughout the world. Uh, the wolves, the lambs. So this is true of an individual level. It's true at a corporate level, even a national and global level, that the gospel brings peace. It brings peace to the world. It brings peace to our hearts. It brings peace in our marriages, in our families, in the church. That's what it should be doing. So we need to examine ourselves. Uh, if we profess to be Christians... And we have a tendency to be a wolf. We have a tendency to, to, to have tongues like serpents and venom and thrashing and snarling. And, uh, you know, we're, we're the vicious predator, the bear, uh, the lion, and the cobra. As many illustrations as you can come up with here. If that's us, the gospel you see changes us and, and we become... Uh, holy, harmless, undefiled. We become wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. Uh, we become meek and gentle and lowly of heart like our Savior. Now, that does not mean we're perfect, but I'm saying this is what the gospel is doing in the life and in the attitude and in the relationships of a true Christian. And we can backslide in this, and we need to claim these promises that even as Christ has brought us into his kingdom, and, and given us the Holy Spirit as the bond of peace, that yes, there's hope, not just for the world, and we'll see that in a moment, and we'll have another sermon on Isaiah coming later. We're not going to get through all this, but, but, but I want you to think about your own life, your own marriage, your own relationship with your children. You heard the description from those old commentators that I just read, uh, patterns of fierceness, intractability, stubbornness, uh, these are things that the sevenfold spirit of God, it's no match for him. He can transform us. He can make us peacemakers. 
right? Isn't that what Jesus says? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. If you're a believer, you've been adopted as a child of God. You've been filled with the Spirit of God. You're being conformed to the image of God's eternal Son. And there's, there's no reason that you should not claim this promise and claim this peaceful, sanctifying effect of the Holy Spirit. Uh, read that passage, think about it, and examine yourself. Am I the cow or the bear in this situation, in that situation? Am I the leopard or the young goat? Am I the wolf or the lamb? And we need to repent and, and seek to be men and women of peace even as we have great hope that as this happens in our lives and throughout the world, that many of the conflicts that we're seeing, indeed all of them at, so, at a certain point uh, for a certain period of time, will be brought to resolution. Now, I, I want us to finish by looking at another passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 19. And if you thought that these other passages are speaking about something that's impossible, that, well, you might as well leave now. It's going to knock your socks off what we have in Isaiah chapter 19 because this is just overwhelmingly significant. What God promises will happen through the power of the gospel. And when you think about the way it's worded and the nations, the specific nations, I mean, we can talk about all nations till we're blue in the face, but let's talk about some of the nations that historically have been at odds and all the king's horses and all the king's men can't seem to put these uh, nations back together again in terms of peace treaties, okay? Listen to what this says. Isaiah 19, verse 18. In that day, uh, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts, one will be called the city of destruction. Now, um, I said this is going to be our last passage, and it is, but I noticed I had neglected to make some points from Isaiah 11, so we'll open up next time with the rest of Isaiah 11, where it talks about Christ gathering all nations, all the Gentiles, to seek him, and I forgot to hit that point. But anyway, I want to focus on peace here. So five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by Jehovah of hosts, one will be called the city of destruction. So here's coming a day when in the land of Egypt, five cities will speak the language of Canaan. That's another way of saying that they will understand and know the word of God. They will swear by the Lord of hosts. That means that when they take vows and oaths, they'll do it in the name of their God, and therefore it's saying their God will be Jehovah, and they will speak His word in His way. It's not saying they're going to be speaking Hebrew, okay? The prophetic imagery here is saying that they'll be speaking the language of God's people, and they will be swearing by Jehovah of hosts as their God. And five of the cities in Egypt will be like that, and one of them will be called the city of destruction. So there's coming a day when five of the cities in Egypt, and again, Egypt represents northern Africa, so you have this region of northern Africa, five of the cities, in terms of the ratio, will be in covenant with God as their God, 
and one will be unbelieving, a city of destruction. Uh, which, by the way, tells us that um, any nation or people group or state or city that doesn't swear by Jehovah and doesn't look to him as, as its God is a city of destruction and is going to face judgment. But this is saying five out of six in Egypt are going to be believing, professing the true religion as the basis of their nation. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. In other words, they're going to worship the Lord. That's what that imagery means. An altar, a sacrifice of praise, as we heard in the psalm meditation. An altar in the midst of the land, a pillar to the Lord at its border, and it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors, and he will send them a Savior, capital S, and a Mighty One, capital M, capital O, and he will deliver them. So Egypt is going to be delivered by Christ, and they're going to put their trust in him and worship him. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. My friends, that is the language of the new covenant people of God. They will know the Lord. The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as far as the waters cover the sea. This is saying that the nation of Egypt will come under such amazing gospel discipleship and influence that it would be able to be spoken of here as a nation that knows the Lord in that day. And they will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. This is a covenanted land, even as we've seen in certain nations in the past. Uh, England, Scotland, and Ireland, and the Solemn League and Covenant in the 17th century. This is a covenanted Egyptian nation in northern Africa. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. Remember we saw... Last time in Psalm 2, he strikes the nations with his rod. Psalm 19, sorry, Revelation 19, verse 15. Jesus on the white horse strikes the nations, but then rules them or shepherds them with his iron rod. Those that he strikes, he then shepherds. In this case, the exact same imagery, the same type of thing, the Lord will strike Egypt. He will rebuke many peoples. He will judge many nations. This is exactly what we saw in Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. He'll strike Egypt, but he'll strike it and heal it. He'll strike it and shepherd it. He'll strike it and rule it. They will return to the Lord. That's repentance, returning. That's the idea. And he will be entreated by them and heal them. If my people who are called by name, my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, so on and so forth. Second Chronicles 7.14, I will hear from heaven and will heal their land. Same idea here, except it's Egypt that's believing and coming to God through Jesus Christ as a covenanted land. And he's healing them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. These were, in the ancient world, you can read about it in the Old Testament or from secular history, Egypt and Assyria were heavyweights on the global scale. In terms of the military conflicts at various points, especially in Isaiah's day, Egypt and Assyria were constantly fighting, constantly at odds. 
here we're told that as Egypt is discipled by the gospel, now there's going to be a highway between these two enemy nations, previously enemy nations, between Egypt and Assyria. And remember, Egypt and Assyria are two of the most vicious, bloodthirsty enemies of Israel, right? They, they, uh, the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites, and God had to bring them out of bondage in Egypt. And the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and nearly overwhelmed and destroyed the kingdom of Judah in the south. So these are nations viciously opposed to God and his people, time immemorial since the fall. And yet now through the gospel, they're brought together. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve, that is, worship with the Assyrians. So they're not going to be building walls between the two countries. They're going to have open interaction, open commerce. That doesn't mean they're going to merge their countries. They're still separate, but they're at peace. They're in harmony. And they're worshiping the Lord together. In that day, Israel will be one of the three. I mean, that blows your mind. It just makes you say, well, maybe there's some other way to understand this. Uh, but again, our faith built on impossibilities. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead. And on it goes. Uh, nothing is too hard for Jehovah. In that day, Israel will be one of the three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land. So you've got northern Africa. You've got the Assyrians, the Arab peoples, currently under the influence of Islam. You've got Israel, uh, the descendants of the patriarchs, who at this moment, we have, there are many believing Israelites, of course, but for the most part, Paul says, Romans 11, enemies of the gospel, yet beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Uh, but now they're not enemies of the gospel anymore. They're worshiping God through Jesus Christ, the Savior and Mighty One, alongside Egypt and Assyria, and there's a blessing, not war, not rumors of wars, not fighting and quarreling and snarling like the wolf and the lamb, you know, the wolf's trying to eat up the lamb. No, there is peace among the nations. That's exactly what we saw in Isaiah 2. These are just particular illustrations and examples of it in some of the most uh, seemingly impossible ways. Whom the Lord of hosts, verse 25, shall bless. It's unbelievable. Blessed is Egypt, my people. What are you going to, how do you wrestle with that? That's an amazing statement. That's an amazing statement. When you think about the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Okay, Israel is his firstborn son. Israel is his people, not Egypt. They're his opponents. He raised up Pharaoh to destroy him and show his power. Egypt is, is God's enemy. But here we're told through the gospel, these Egyptians, these descendants of Ham, I mean, you, you can... You can look at it from so many angles. Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. I'd like to know, how do you explain that? Because nothing like that has ever happened thus far in human history. Nothing like, nothing even remotely like this has happened. And apart from the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, nothing like this will ever happen. But we're told that 
this is going to happen in that day. There is coming a day between now and the second coming when the unthinkable will happen. Egypt will be God's people. Assyria will be the work of his hands. Israel will be his inheritance. And, and, and there will be perfect unity and equality between Jew and Gentile, uh, all the different ethnic groups, tribe, tongue, people, nation, all together worshiping God. Doesn't mean everyone's going to be converted. Doesn't mean everything's absolutely perfect. But it means that nations that fundamentally reject Christ now will fundamentally profess and seek to obey him and maintain peace according to his gospel. And, and my friends, that is a beautiful message. Do you believe that? Do you believe that what's said here, and I'd be interested, the other schools of prophetic interpretation, what are you doing with this passage? How can you interpret it any other way than it's straightforward that the Savior, the Mighty One, Jesus Christ, will deliver all nations, indeed the most vicious and violently opposed nations, and bring them together? This is our hope. Now, our great hope is not for this world. Don't get me wrong. We're talking about in the morning service. We're talking about the second coming of Christ and the world to come and heaven. That's our ultimate hope. But we do have hope for the nations, for the healing of the nations. And what is our hope? How do we address the geopolitical fighting and warring and all the things that are happening? What's our overarching lens through which we view these things? We see these wars, we see this violence, we see this escalation of military conflict, we see it as a fruit of unbelief in Christ, a fruit of the mutual rejection of Christ that we see throughout virtually every nation, even our own. We see it for the most part, people who are not interested in submitting to the word and law of Christ which comes forth from Jerusalem. And because of that, we see the wars. We see the violence. We see the oppression. We, we see the hatred that has engulfed and enslaved our world. And our lens, our perspective, is that, yes, but there's coming a day, and we're laboring for that day, and we're going to sow seeds of the gospel. And those who sow in tears will reap in joy at the harvest time. And we're confident that what we're doing, may God help us. We probably don't do a great job at it. We need to do a better job. But what we're doing in proclaiming the gospel, this is ultimately part of the solution that will bring peace to the nations through Christ. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, you alone do wondrous things. Increase our faith. Help our unbelief. Give clarity to our thoughts and our interpretations of your word. We pray that you would bring a day, even as you promised, in which these nations around us, even our own nation, uh, would submit to Christ and beat our swords into plowshares. Indeed, that there would be such peace that we could focus our attention on so many other important things than uh, promoting and winning wars. We pray, Lord, that you would bring this peace into our own hearts, into our own lives, that we would be men and women of peace, making peace, promoting peace, seeking to be peacemakers who are called the children of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.